Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Happy almost Halloween. On today's program, I'll take you with on a backstage tour of one of Chicago's oldest historic landmarks that's still operating today. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbonell will stop by to review the Chicago premiere of the thought-provoking play Tambo and Bones. Later in the show, I'll catch up with author Lawrence Lamer to talk about his new book, Hitchcock's Blondes. And I'll take a closer look at an exhibit that highlights the work of a somewhat forgotten architect and designer. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. The Auditorium Theater has seen a lot over the course of its 133-year history. The theater's origins are tied to businessman and arts patron Ferdinand Peck, who had a vision to build the theater for the people. Designed by the acclaimed architecture firm of Adler & Sullivan, the theater opened a great fanfare on December 9, 1889. It's presented some of the world's greatest performers, welcomed global dignitaries, and survived two pandemics. You get a sense of that history the moment you walk in the Richardson-Romanesque structure that sits at 50 East Ida B. Wells Drive. So this is a transitional point. We leave behind the fancy stuff and now we go to cast iron staircases with a minimal amount of decoration and stenciling for all intents and purposes disappears above this level. So the idea, I guess, is the cheaper you to get, the less decoration you're going to get. So they just simplified it more as you might. The other thing is we do have some bathrooms here. One problem with our theater... Of course, it helps to have a tour guide. This is John Popick. He's been giving tours of the historic landmark for the past five years, though his connection to the Auditorium Theater goes back much further. More on that in a bit. Of course, patrons can take in the majesty of this space when they arrive for performances, but to get a true sense of the structure's legacy, the Auditorium Theater now offers backstage tours four times a week. I recently caught up with Popik on a Wednesday afternoon before one of his tours. The theater here opened on December 9th, 1889. Uh, it actually had had a event held prior to that in 1888, which was the Republican National Convention of that year. And the nominee of that convention, who was Benjamin Harrison, went on to win the presidency and the election, and he came back here for the grand opening night in 1889, and it was said to be the first time the president and the vice president left Washington, D.C., and traveled somewhere other than the East Coast, so it was considered a very important event for us. And then just to set the stage, this wasn't just any ordinary theater opening at at that time. This was the biggest building in the country? It was the largest building in the country, and it was the one of the, certainly the largest theaters in the world, 4,200 seats. Uh, what's interesting is Mr. Ferdinand Wyatt Peck, this 
gentleman here, uh, who was responsible for the creation of the building and the whole concept of it. Uh, he chose not to call it the Grand Opera House of Chicago. He decided to simply refer to it as the auditorium. And the reasoning seems to be that he wanted it used for multi-purposes. So rather than just Grand Opera, it would be used for musical events, for symphonic events, for political events, for speakers to come from around the country or the world. And surprisingly, it was used for sporting events. And you wouldn't think an opera house would have sporting events. But we actually know there were tennis games played here, boxing matches, including Muhammad Ali once boxed on our stage. Really, it was a theater in a way of the people. That was another concept of Mr. Peck's to look at all levels of society. Uh, in the 1880s, it was a very politically fraught period where there were a lot of protests. I mean, it's almost similar to today's issues in a way. Um, and he felt that the arts and music would be the same on all levels of society. Whether you were rich or poor, you would still enjoy that. And I think that was part of his concept here. And was part of it, he had this idea that by incorporating additional office space in a hotel, that that could help subsidize ticket prices. Exactly. He knew right away that culture doesn't support itself and certainly on a scale here it would not have been able to. So he convinced the architects to design a tripart structure. So there was a hotel on Michigan Avenue, a theater in the center, and an office section on Wabash Avenue. And he hoped that the income from the hotel and the offices would supplant and keep the theater in operation. And it did function that way for about the first 20, 25 years, but then it just failed. And the problem was they built an elevated train on Wabash and the office tenants didn't like it and they didn't want to renew. And they somewhat stupidly, I suppose, failed to put toilets in every room in the hotel. And while that was not uncommon for the day, people didn't like that. The Auditorium Theater was designed to stand out from other great performance venues around the world. Adler and Sullivan wanted to create a space where every seat had good views and acoustics. One of the things they wanted to do was not build a traditional European-style opera house. And most of those opera houses had a flat floor, maybe two or three levels of box seats in a horseshoe fashion, and then maybe two little balconies at the top. But our theater is based on ancient amphitheaters of Greece and Italy. So what we have is a very high sloping floor on the main floor, a very high sloping floor in the balcony, and then again two little balconies at the top. And the number of boxes was kept to a minimum because both Mr. Peck and the architect Louis Sullivan felt that they were elitist to have boxes. I mean, they publicly stated, we don't have royalty here, we don't need a box for a king and queen in the back of the theater. So they were opposed to it. And then my understanding is they said no boxes at all. And the people who were putting up the money, like Marshall Field or Potter Palmer or George Pullman, they kind of said, you know, our wives would like a box, <laughs> put the boxes in. So they did include 42 boxes in the house, but to be quite honest, they're probably the worst seats in the house. 
Every time I come in here, I always enjoy the lighting, the glow. Was that a part of the original design? Yes, that's a big part of the design of the building. Sullivan was really fascinated by this concept of electric lighting. And in his day, in the 1880s, this was all very new. And he looked at a light bulb as a form of high technology. So he wanted to do advance thus the use of electricity. The problem was in this building is the city grid wasn't here yet. So in order to even make the building electrified, they had to build their own power generators. So we had like eight to 12 power generators in the basement to power the elevators and the, uh, all the lighting in the building and the kitchens and the restaurants, etc. So this was probably the largest use of electric light anywhere in the world up to that time. And even in our own theater, we have over 3,000 light bulbs. So the problem is right now the type of lighting that was used, which was carbon filament lighting, uh, is really not made anymore. So it's getting more and more difficult to find examples of that to use in our theater. Um, even our lobbies, as we're sitting here, they are not carbon lighting. This is modern day LED lighting in the style of what would be here, but it's brighter, much brighter. This is like a 60 watt bulb. In the carbon, they're more like almost 20 to 40 watt bulbs. So they were much dimmer. And Sullivan wanted to treat them as not only this high technology, but also as a form of decoration. So he didn't make chandeliers, anything like that. Um, it's fascinating because the Metropolitan in New York had been built a few years earlier, and of course the Paris Grand Opera House had been built 15 years earlier or something like that. And that those lobbies were fantastic in design. Ours is like, what? Why is it so dark or why is it so small or why does it look like you're entering into a cave or something? And he really wanted not to stress the design elements in the public areas, the utilitarian areas where the stairwells, etc. were. So he kind of toned everything down. And the other thing is he wanted to use earth colors. So we have browns or beige or old ivory, it's called. And he would use these colors because they represented what was literally outside the front door of the theater in the prairies of the Midwest. And I recently also heard, and I don't know if this is true, they didn't want to use red in the theater. Most opera houses are like white, red, and gold. Well, no, red was out. Why was red out? It represented anarchists and protesters and stuff like that. And so red was like communism. So they didn't want to use red. That's what I read recently. I don't know if that's 100% true or not, but it makes an interesting story. Because a big part of the origin story is like the Haymarket riot right. that just occurred. Right, and again, Mr. Peck, great Mr. Peck here. He was really a humanitarian. He really wanted to appeal to all levels of society, even though, of course, he was, believe it or not, about the fourth richest man in Chicago at the time. So he wasn't exactly at that level of everyone else. But um, I think he really wanted to create an urban space and a theater that was for everyone, but also was multi-purposeful itself. It wasn't always just going to be an opera performance. 
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek, and this is the arts section. I'm talking with auditorium theater tour guide John Popick about the venue's remarkable 130-plus year history. The most interesting part of the auditorium theater story has been that period where, like, around the beginning of World War II to the mid-60s, it, it's pretty much vacant or right. used for a different purpose. Yes, what happened is the theater and, well, the building declared bankruptcy in 1941, and it closed down pretty much. And the city of Chicago took control of it, and they actually were going to demolish the entire building. But they determined that the cost of demolishing it was greater than the value of the building itself, so they decided not to do that. And then World War II comes along, the U.S. government takes over the building, they house servicemen here, our theater becomes a 16-lane bowling alley for soldiers, and then in 1945 the war ends and a new university has basically been founded, or college at the time, Roosevelt, and they were looking for a building, and they asked the city did they have any appropriate location, and they suggested the auditorium building. So they ended up taking over in 1946, and they are still here today. They still use the building today. But one of the things they didn't want to do was operate a theater. So they basically put the theater in mothballs beginning in 1946, and it stayed closed to the public for 22 years. And in 1961, one of the trustees of the university, a woman named Beatrice Batchner, she wanted to get it reopened. So over the next six years, she raised over $3 million. And on Halloween night, October 31st, 1967, the theater had its second grand opening. And luckily for me, I was actually here that night. So I'm probably one of the few people still around that was in the theater on that particular occasion. Why were you here? I was here because as a child, I was always interested in architecture, and I had heard about the theater. And I wrote or sent my allowance to the theater because they were looking for money. And Mrs. Spatchner <laughs> wrote my mother a letter and said, it's rare that children send us money, so if your son would like to come to the theater, I will give him a tour of the theater. Wow. So when I was like 15, I came to the theater and got a tour before it was o even open to the public. So then I made a decision to try and get here opening night, and my mother agreed, and my sisters came, and the four of us sat in the second balcony upstairs. I actually still have my ticket from that occasion that I keep in my collection. I really enjoyed it, and I've been coming here ever since. So that particular night, there, that's the ticket. So that particular night, was New York City Ballet doing A Midsummer Night's Dream by George Balanchine, famous choreographer. And it was as if the theater had awoken from its sleep. And then you've maintained a relationship the rest of your life? Yes, of course. I've been here, I would say I've actually been here for at least 800 performances in the last 50 years. And uh, so I've been a patron for a long time. And as far as uh, working here, doing tours, it's been about five years that I've okay. been doing that. When you give these tours, uh, obviously you're going to get a mix of locals and people from out of town and some real architecture buffs. What are some of the things that your tour guests seem to really respond to? Well, it depends on their age in a way. The older folks my age, uh, they 
I usually ask, have you been here before and what did you see? And they'll say, oh, I was here in 1972 and I saw Bob Dylan or I saw Earth, Wind and Fire or I saw Prince or something. And that was the 70s when we were a premier rock house for the country, really. And so they will have that memory. Um, but when it's more modern people or more recent people visiting, they usually say, oh, I came for the Nutcracker Ballet, which was done here many years for the Joffrey Ballet. It was here for about over 20 years, and they would do the Nutcracker every Christmas. So that would be their more recent idea of seeing something here. I never saw rock concerts, I will say. It wasn't my type of music at the time, but I've seen many ballet companies here. I think I've seen in my lifetime, I've seen over 100 different ballet companies from around the world, and a lot of them here in the auditorium. Those are my memories. People often ask me, well, what was your favorite performance? And well, it's kind of hard to pick out one from 800 of them, <laughs> but uh, usually I will say, well, there's two I remember distinctly. One was a Joffrey performance they were doing actually their version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and in the second act or whatever, the machine that produces fog went crazy, and so much fog was on stage that you couldn't see the dancers. The only thing you could hear was they were in the midst of a sword fight, so you could hear the clicking of the swords, and mostly worrying that they're not gonna fall in the orchestra pit. Uh, so that sticks in my head and then there was a gala event in I think 1969 and the lead act on that event was a upcoming and up our newly risen actress singer dancer and so she was kind of making one of her first big appearances on stage and that actor turned out to be Liza Minnelli. Wow. So I got to see Liza Minnelli. So she was probably in her 20s or something like that. I know it was before Cabaret, the movie. Now, I'm not so good at talking, but I, I'm, I'm pretty good at singing, or I used to be. Let's see if I still am. In October and early November, Popik adds some spooky tidbits to his tour, though he says the theater doesn't really have a ghost story of its own. Unfortunately, I wish we had a historic ghost here that we could say, oh, this ghost is haunting our place. But we do have people who've talked about various paranormal things like hearing voices or being in the balcony and they look to the stage and they see people crossing the stage. Um, one thing I've learned recently is that our building sits on American Indian burial grounds. And there's some question whether we could have some ghosts popping up through the floor. You would think a building 134 years old would have some ghosts. John, thanks so much for making time to talk. You're welcome. That's John Popick. He's a tour guide at the Auditorium Theater, the landmark. Offers tours Sundays, Mondays, and Wednesdays at noon, and Thursdays at 6 p.m. You can find more info at auditoriumtheater.org. Thanks for tuning in this morning. A quick reminder, make sure to visit the Arts Section's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features like the one you just heard available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. 
And you can also reach out to me if you have a comment, question, or suggestion. You can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at OnAirGary. Here come the drums! And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined remotely now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. And the marketing material for the Chicago premiere of a play titled Tambo and Bones, Refracted Theater Company uses this tagline. A clown show, a rap concert, the history of race pretty ambitious from everything i've read there are some really big ideas and play with this production uh, the dueling critics are gonna dive into it though a little background on refracted theater might help the name might not be super familiar to everyone listening jonathan that's because this is a, a relatively young company it's a relatively young company it's only about four years old uh, and it was not originally a Chicago company refracted theater company uh, began in new york city and relocated to Chicago two years ago, just in time for the shutdown. And so Tambo and Bones is, I believe, only their second live production or fully live staged production. They've done some online stuff, too. Refracted does not yet have a permanent home, so they're performing Tambo and Bones at the Den Theater Complex on Milwaukee Avenue. But a permanent home is on their wish list, and it's one of the reasons they moved to Chicago from New York, because real estate is so, you know, completely out of sight for a smallish uh, young theater company in New York City, and less so in Chicago. They do, uh, their history is a company that does extremely bold and vivid work and does it well. And I think uh, Tambo and Bones, what you see on stage, is, is a good example. The scenic design, the costumes, the lighting, uh, they are much richer and more elaborate than we usually see in smaller off-loop theaters. Uh, Tambo and Bones, as I said, the costumes are excellent. A, a surprising scenic design, actually, that, that does a trick. I won't give away what it is. <laughs> Very effective lighting and projections, and I have to say, a super excellent original music score by Chicagoan Ethan Corvney, a score which really fits the play like a film soundtrack that closely aligned as, as, a, as a background piece. The lead actors in this production are William Anthony Sebastian Rose II as Tambo and Patrick Newson Jr. as Bones, and they are accomplished and they are charismatic with strong physical skills, lots of energy and attack, uh, nuance when necessary, and they also have rap chops as well, because just like the press release promised, this uh, show is one half a, a rap concert uh, and one half a clown show of sorts. Uh, that being said, the material they deliver is complicated and tough and not for those easily offended. It's been written by Dave Harris, a young but already quite heralded author. Uh, and Tambo and Bones is exceptionally theatrical, with movement, choreography, music, physical comedy, humor, violence, a puppet, and knife-edged <laughs> language. Harris throws just about everything at the audience, including the N-word bomb, at least 100 times in the show, I would say. <clears throat> 
And the play posits that those who came from Africa were the original N-worders, while the rest of us, the presumed audience for the play, are the, and this is a direct quote from the play, we are the white N-worders. The show only runs 90 minutes, and it certainly packs a, a hell of a lot into those 90 minutes. Carrie, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting show. When I, while watching it, because it starts with, like, literally like a vaudeville minstrel show, Tambo and Bones being the names of, of stock characters on the minstrel circuit back in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and their names actually were used in the musical The Scottsboro Boys, which is one of several shows that we've seen in recent years that has used minstrelsy, minstrel characters, as a way of interrogating race in America. So in that sense, I think Harris is really part of a, an emerging tradition, shall we say. Uh, you could even look at Susan Mori Parks' Top Dog Underdog. You could look at uh, Douglas Turner Ward's 1965 satire, Day of Absence, in which black actors played whiteface to represent white people in a town where all the black people had disappeared, leaving them to do their own work, which is, of course, unthinkable. Uh, the real conflict between Tambo and Bones, and I, I, I agree with you, Jonathan, I think beautifully played here, by William Anthony Sebastian Rose II and Patrick Newsom Jr., is kind of a, the age-old conflict between how do you do revolution? Do you win using the tools of the oppressor? Do you succeed on their terms, which in this case would be capitalism, success in, in rap music, getting gold records and Grammys and having the adulation of the crowds? Or do you succeed by interrogating them, by challenging them, by using your tools to tear down the very thing that you're also trying to get into. Uh, so that's a, a real complex question. I don't think Harris necessarily comes up with an answer. I've read interviews with him where he says, you know, even writing this play, I'm thinking, am I writing this to get laughs? Am I writing this to make a point? When you're so inside it, it's hard sometimes to know what your motives are. So I think that's one of the things that I would suggest is successful about Tambo and Bones is that it's not really, it is tough. I agree with you on that, Jonathan. It's raising a lot of tough issues, a lot of tough language. What I found refreshing is that I came away feeling like I haven't been told what to think about this. I've been given a lot of possible ways to look at these issues through the eyes, particularly of young black men. But I haven't been told, and this is why you should think this way, or this is how you should feel about it. Um, in that way, it's very discomforting, but also in, in its own way, exhilarating. Um, and I agree with you that the production values are really high quality, this, as you mentioned, is the first, I think, full production that Refracted has done, and, and definitely, you know, a, a terrific team assembled there. Um, does it feel a little um, inchoate at, at points? Are there points where I wasn't quite sure why the ships were happening as they were? Probably so, but I think that that's also part of the intent of behind the work, if that makes sense. And does that make sense to you, Jonathan? Well, it it does, and I, I share some of that, too, because there is so very much in Tambo and Bones that it's really difficult to boil it down. Right. Uh, among things I can pinpoint that were touch points uh, and issues were uh, there's black-on-black -black violence, there's mm -hmm. racial hatred, uh, self-loathing, white racism, black-on-white violence. Uh, and also very much a story about how money and ambition can corrupt an individual, uh, specifically Tambo and Bones, each in their individual ways. 
And all of this is taking place. Here's a wonderful piece of satire, which I pray never comes through. True. All of this is taking place in a dystopian, uh, not-too-distant-future USA, in which Elon Musk is president of the United States. There are many messages and tropes, and like you, I really didn't know really what the play's fundamental points are supposed to be. A little bit, maybe just too much on the plate or a or a shotgun approach, scattershot. Mm-hmm. Let's let's throw the plate of spaghetti on the wall and see which strands which strands stick. Right. But I do think that the, yeah, the, the, again, I to repeat, I think the strongest spine for it is this idea of even with you know it, it's sort of a meta commentary. Even watching a play about racism are, is that really helping you do anything about racism? You know, it, it creating a song that addresses racial violence or or police brutality. Does that actually change the terms, or is it just a way? Is it a way of venting? Is it changing the discourse? Is it making money for people who know how to use that discourse to attract a large audience that's already inclined to look upon their messages favorably? I mean, these are all the points that are raised, and as I said, it, it can feel a little—I don't want to say scattershot because I do think that there's more uh, thoughtfulness to the structure than, than perhaps what I'm saying implies. But it is just so stacked with ideas um, that it can be a little hard to suss out which ones you're going to, you know, which which threads you're going to pull on and, and walk away with. Yeah. But again, you know, I found that um, there there are some parallels with this to other things that I've seen that I think also have in the past been described as perhaps not completely successful, but still stay in my mind. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners would be familiar with Spike Lee's satire, cinematic satire, Bamboozled, uh, way no, back in 2000, no. which also talked about a modern-day minstrel show and also very much became about the two men who were involved in it and their conflicts over, we're making money, you know, we're fooling people at their at their own game, we're using these tropes of, of racism to interrogate racism versus, no, actually, we're just kind of promoting the same thing, only in a different guise. So I think these are really smart questions, and I think that's one reason artists continue to investigate that. I would be very excited to see, frankly, the next things Refractor does and the next thing that Dave Harris does. And, and you know, in terms of the confrontational quality, there's a little bit of that. You know, it reminded me slightly, at least. Jonathan, I think one of the last shows you and I talked about before the pandemic shut down in 2020 was Kill Move Paradise at Timeline Theater, which was about... Yes. You know the afterworld, an afterlife of people, black, primarily young black men who are black men who have been killed by police in police violence. And there was a, you know, there's a character who's very much looking out at the audience, and saying, "What's good?" You know, asking us to enter this world. And so there's a little bit of that here too, even though there's this, you know, beautiful vaudeville framing, at least for the initial scene. You know, that sort of sets up this proscenium and this boxed world that's very familiar to anyone who's ever, you know, seen images. Um, from vaudeville or minstrel shows, it, it, we're still kind of being confronted, and that wall starts breaking. And uh, by the end, the actors are actually presenting themselves under their own names, but in a future that doesn't, well, as you said, one hopes does not come to pass for us. Uh, because there's, you know, and, and it moves beyond, we, I, without giving anything away, I would say it moves beyond even racial conflict to an even larger question that makes us leap into. What does it mean to be human? How do you determine who is human? Well, I would say what it moves to is, is the, the ultimate point that, that for many individuals, probably most of us, self-preservation takes precedence over whatever else might be going on. And again, without giving away the specifics, 
that's what is there. I want to clarify one thing, because we've been talking about the characters of Tambo and Bones and minstrel shows. This play does not at all recreate a minstrel show. It doesn't even begin to, but takes two uh, uh, iconic characters, the the, the the lead comics, Tambo and Bones, who were known as the End Men, for those of you who know mm-hmm. what an old-fashioned minstrel show was like, both Tambo and Bones were tricksters of sorts. One well-spoken and pseudo-intellectual, and the other more of a low comedian. And that is kind of the division between Tambo and Bones in this play, at least when we initially see them. And when the actors rebel against the playwright and the minstrel show trope, and insist on going their own ways, with Bones intent on, me, on, 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 on finding money and fame, and Tambo intent on literally uh, changing the world, they still call themselves Tambo and Bones. And right. they replace the minstrel show uh, uh, trope with rap music tropes. With become, they become rap stars, controlling a vast media empire and a great deal of wealth. And... Uh, the second half of the play kicks off from that point. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it engaged me as, in a, as an impressive piece of theater, and I really have nothing but praise for the performers and the director, Mikhail Burke, but I can't say that I liked the play or that it made deep emotional connections. I think there's points in watching it where I felt conscious of watching myself react to it if that makes any sense, which it may not. But because I think of the terms that it is set up for self-interrogation of ourselves as white audience members lends itself to that. So in that way, yes, I would think there's a bit of a distancing. I don't know that I was necessarily expecting, though, to have that emotional connection. Um, What I did find was a great investment in the relationship between Hambo and Bones and I think that has a lot to do with, again, these performers who are so in sync with each other. It has to be an exhausting, even though it's only 90 minutes, I have to think that this is an exhausting show to perform. It's physical, as you said. They are rapping, they are singing, they, there's, there's movement, there is stylized comedy, um, and there are so many tonal shifts within it that I think they, they manage to keep a pretty strong handle on. So in that sense, maybe I find myself admiring and cogitating more than feeling fully emotionally invested. But again, I'm not sure that that was what I was being asked to do by the piece. So obviously, I'm still, I'm still thinking about it. So in that sense, it was successful for me. Well, it's hard to ask for much more than that if something makes that much of an impact on you. Tambo and Bones continues through November 11th at the Bookspan Theater, which is inside the Den Theater. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, you're most welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. Known as the master of suspense, some film historians and critics credit Alfred Hitchcock with creating the thriller genre. Over a 50-plus year career, the British filmmaker was nominated for five Best Director Oscars, His films garnered a total of 46 Academy Award nominations. Hitchcock was known for his singular focus in bringing his artistic vision to life. He was less interested in collaborating with his actors. In a 1962 interview with French filmmaker Francois Truffaut, 
He's quoted as saying, quote, actors are cattle. The director's relationship with women actors has come under more scrutiny in recent years. Tippi Hedren, who was Hitchcock's lead in The Birds and Marnie, wrote in detail about the abusive treatment she endured while working with him. A new book is putting a spotlight on Hitchcock's relationship with his most well-known leading ladies, all of whom have something in common. Titled Hitchcock's Blondes, The Unforgettable Women Behind the Legendary Director's Dark Obsession, the book dives deep into the director's relationships with eight actors who each had varying degrees of success while working with him. According to author Lawrence Lamer, Hitchcock wasn't always the easiest director to work with, but he was a master of manipulation, pushing the right buttons to get what he wanted from his actors. I recently caught up with Lamer, who was born in Chicago, to talk about the new book. Hitchcock's Blondes is actually the second part of a planned trilogy of books that each highlight a creative genius and their relationship with women. The first part was 2021's Capote's Women, a true story of love, betrayal, and a swan song for an era. It was a national bestseller. Yeah, and the third part I'm working on right now is Andy Warhol and his muses. And then the, the first part was on Truman Capote. And... Yeah, and that's the one that's being made into an eight-part series starring Diane Lane and, and Christina Flockhart and, and uh, Demi Moore and Molly Ringwald, whatever, whole, Tom Hollander, which will air early next year. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I are eagerly awaiting that series. But I was curious, Capote, Hitchcock, Warhol, on the surface, these three wouldn't seem to have much in common other than their respective creative skills. Is there a common thread among them? Boy, I, I don't know. This is, this is the first time I've thought about that. Uh, well, just their, just their creative abilities, their, their uniqueness that sets them apart from the rest of humanity. So let's let's dive into Hitchcock's Blondes. Uh, what initially inspired uh, not just to kind of take a look at Hitchcock's career, but his relationship with some of the actresses he worked with? Well, first of all, he's the greatest director of the 20th century, okay? Go to proto-Amazon Prime and punch in Hitchcock, and you'll find over 40 films that you can watch with pleasure from this man. And he worked in the in the in the commercial center of filmmaking he didn't think he was making masterpieces he had no idea how long it would last so i found that fascinating he was put down for so much of his career until tell francois Truffaut, the great french director came and did a week doing an interview with interview interview with him turning into a book people finally began to realize the greatness of the man so that's it and the women he's obsessed with these women he was in some ways a troubled man He's obsessed with these women. He's impotent, but he's obsessed with these blonde actresses. You touch on this in in Chapter 2. Obviously, the filmmaking industry isn't what it's like today. What about filmmaking appealed to a young Alfred Hitchcock? Well, he he was a voyeur. He was an outsider. And he found the one thing, probably the one thing in the world, he could he could achieve great things with, filmmaking. And, and what's interesting to me, he started in the silent era. And now one film you can watch on Amazon Prime is The Lodger. It's a silent film. And it's just wonderful. You can, you can watch it pleasurably today. And he was, he, he, he was always a silent filmmaker, in a sense. Right? The, the picture was the thing. And if there were words, there were some words, but the words weren't really what mattered. Hitchcock always had this thing for blondes. That's who he's casting for these major roles from your book, I gather, he didn't really hide it, his infatuation. Okay, first of all, what, what is there about blondes? I mean, he's not the only one obsessed by blondes. People think blonde, he thought blonde was, blondes were the ultimate woman. 
and uh, wow, tell me when you meet a natural blonde. I mean, there's there's half the people in America are blondes. I wish I had invested in peroxide, <laughs> but uh, but to, so he that's what he that's what he cared about. He just and some of them weren't real blondes, but that that's that's what he made them. Ingrid Bergman, she's not really blonde. It's a it's a light light blonde brown hair, really. So among the uh, the eight blondes you write about in this book, there's a a hierarchy of sorts. Uh, for instance, I feel like he wouldn't treat Ingrid Bergman and or Grace Kelly like the way he treated. Tippy Hedren, is that fair to say? Okay, first of all, there's nothing more snobbish than a lower middle class Brit. And that's what he was. And Britain is the most con- self-conscious society in the world. You open your mouth and hear where your accent is, and they know where you belong and where you probably always stay. So that was part of him. So, so he looked at the women. There was somebody like Kim Novak who came from a working class home and was kind of uh, very insecure when he brought her for the, he would always bring the actresses to a luncheon, the famous luncheon at his, at his home. And when he, when she came, he sort of showed her the paint paintings on the wall, knowing she wouldn't really wouldn't appreciate them the way somebody else would. He showed her the crystal, he showed her the the, uh, uh, the vintage wines, just showing off to her and trying to intimidate her and make her malleable. You write about that first encounter with Grace Kelly, but I would think something like that wouldn't intimidate someone. She grew up in a wealthy household. Yeah, but he didn't try that with her. <laughs> he, tra- he, tra- <laughs> he, he treated her as his kin. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. He figured it. Look, look he was a very manipulative person in so many different ways. He figured out what worked with each one to get what he wanted out of them. So I've always been fascinated by Grace Kelly. There's lots of stuff in your book about Grace Kelly's personal life. Some of this stuff, uh, I know, has been reported, but did you find some of these things about Grace yeah, Kelly surprising? So, so I had three researchers. Some I found, uh, some, uh, some was new. But you know what? If a man sleeps with a bunch of women, he's a stud. If a woman sleeps with an equal number of men, she's a slut. That's that's the way we traditionally see it. And in, in the, I try to write about it. These women, I mean, you, you ask a, you ask a European what his morals are. In America, and the European will talk about politics, religion, social policy. It'll go on and on in a very complex way. You ask an American what his morals are, he'll respond talking about sex. Okay, so I don't think. Uh, I don't think it's immoral for a single woman to sleep with a lot of men. I mean, if she wants to do it, fine. And, and I and I portrayed that in the book. And but Hitchcock, she slept with and when she was making doubt him for murder. She had an affair with Ray Milland, who was married, and with the screenwriter. The screenwriter and Hitchcock was this little short little screenwriter. And Hitchcock said, "My gosh, she slept even with the slept even with the screenwriters." A very disdainful tone to that. Right, right. I remember that part of the book. What a difference between Kelly's upbringing and persona and then his his next quote-unquote blonde, uh, Kim Novak, who you referenced. She comes from a completely different background. Yeah, and I, I interviewed Kim Novak, and uh, I have immense empathy for her. She, she, she was, has a, is bipolar, okay? She goes sweeping these highs to these lows. She didn't have that diagnosed until she was out of the business. But she suffered with this, this all her life. People thought she had an, an out-of-control ego because she, she'd sit in the dressing room and wouldn't come out when it was time for one of her shots. But she's just sitting there depressed. She was just a troubled person. 
And now she's gotten, she's not that she's gotten some control of it. And she basically says, I know when I go down, I'm going to come up again. So I'm okay with that. If you're just joining us, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with author Lawrence Lamer about his new book, Hitchcock's Blondes, The Unforgettable Women Behind the Legendary Director's Dark Obsession. You start the book with a, an account of Tippi Hedren's experience on the set of The, the Birds. Why did you want to start there? Uh, you know what? It's, a, it's, a, it's an author's cliche to choose the most dramatic moment and start with that to hook the audience, right? So, so one of my friends, uh, uh, Mark Olshaker, who's a, who's a best-selling author, he suggested that. He's absolutely right because it's so dramatic. In, remember in The Birds, there's that scene where she, where she goes upstairs and she opens the door and the birds come out and attack her. Well, to film that, he was, he was initially going to use mechanical birds, but the mechanical birds didn't look real. So she comes in Monday morning and, and the assistant director says, I'm afraid we're going to have to use real, real birds. And she comes to be sh- to the shooting. How long would she expect it to be? Maybe a half hour, 20 minutes, whatever, not very long. He, he shot that for five straight days. In the fifth day... Uh, he tied these uh, the birds to to strings on her arms, and the string and the birds came up and almost plucked out her eyes. And now, now, now you hear that and you think, what a cruel man! Why would he do that? He, it, it was cruel, but it was to, it wasn't to be cruel to her. It wasn't to hurt her. It was to get the best film he could get, and he got that. And the birds is one of his masterpieces. For various reasons, you know, the he works with these different actresses. I feel like he develops some really strong relationships, uh, a closeness. I think he would have wanted to continue making movies with Grace Kelly if she didn't become a, a princess. Do you get that sense, too, that would he have been content to work with some of these actresses? Uh, oh, well, it depends where they were. Not, not uh, you know, he... he, he... He was tough. I mean, Jimmy Stewart. He, Jimmy Stewart wanted to work with him tomorrow, and he some more, and he decided that uh, Jimmy Stewart was too too old to play a romantic lead. But Grace Kelly, yes, he definitely wanted to. And I, you know, Rainier is not one of the Prince Rainier, not one of the great love affairs of all time. She didn't even know the man when she married him. She'd known him about, for about three days. It's a mystery why she did that. And uh, I think her best film is not a Hitchcock film, but The Country Girl. And she's just brilliant in that. If she had stayed on and hadn't gone there, I, I think she would have been one of the great American actresses. The reason she isn't seen as that way is because she's just too beautiful. People think she's beautiful, she can't be anything else. All right. She did win the, the Oscar for Country Girl. She right? did. She so. did, rightfully so. Some of Hitchcock's methods you know, might not fly today. Do you think he could have adapted to today's environment? Yeah, you know, it's funny. People talk, that it's like JFK. They talk about JFK's wild sex life and think, how could he be president today? Well, he was a very smart man. And he wouldn't have behaved that way today, okay? I mean, we know men in Hollywood, uh, in Hitchcock's era, uh, the casting couch was everywhere. If you're a beautiful young woman, teenager, who shows up, you're probably going to be asked to, to sleep with, with, with director or producers or whatever, okay? And uh, that doesn't go today. And thank goodness it doesn't go today. Now, you've written several in-depth biographies. For something like this, do you have hopes for the for readers who pick it up? I hope that they'll have a new, renewed appreciation for Hitchcock's films and maybe maybe go see watch some of those films, which they can do fairly easily. They're in theaters sometimes. And, and and understanding these women and what they went through and what they accomplished, and uh, realize uh, that they how great how great they were too.
we talked off off air i have to ask you since i'm here in chicago i know you moved at some point but do you have memories of chicago growing up are here? you kidding are you kidding i'm 81 years old i can remember the the milk wagon with the horse come to, come come down the alley next to our house on the south side my father was teaching at the university of chicago and uh I love Chicago. I love Midwest, Midwesterners because, for the most part, they aren't pretentious. <laughs> Just like Kim Novak, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I was—I had a play. I wrote a play about Rose Kennedy, and that was in a theater for two seasons long. And. In Chicago, I came back a couple times to see that. So I just loved Chicago so much. I was just back there a few months ago with my brother. Went oh. back to 604 for Ingleside Avenue, where we loved to see that, to walk around there. And the, and the Midway. can remember the Midway so well. I really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot. Lawrence, thanks so much for making time to talk to me. Well, thanks for having me. That was Lawrence Lamer. He's the author of Hitchcock's Blondes, The Unforgettable Women, Behind the Legendary Director's Dark Obsession. It's available wherever books are sold. You can find more info at lamer.com. That's spelled L-E-A-M-E-R.com. Dans mon esprit tout divin, je me perds dans tes yeux, je me dans la This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. The life's work of pioneering architect, designer, and artist Hector Guimard is on display at the Driehaus Museum for another week. The Frenchman was a leader in the Art Nouveau movement that took shape during the Belle Epoque, but for various reasons, he's sometimes overlooked outside of Europe. The Driehaus Museum put a spotlight on the trailblazing creative with an exhibit titled Hector Guimard, Art Nouveau de Modernism. If you're not familiar with the name, you've likely seen examples of his work or influences on contemporary design. Guimard's most well-known contribution is the design and creation of Paris's original metro station entrances, his use of cast iron and glass in combination with plant-like curves and a modern font was considered radical at the time, but that forward-thinking approach is now often remembered as a celebration of accessible beauty. The exhibition, co-organized with Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City, contains a number of pieces from the late Richard H. Driehaus personal collection. I recently visited the Driehaus Museum to learn more about Hector Guimard. Hector Guimard was not a well-known person in North America, but of course was the founder and visionary architect and designer of Art Nouveau, was a leader of that movement in Paris that uh, emerged in Europe in the late 19th century. This is Sally Ann Felgenhauer, director of collections and exhibitions at the Driehaus Museum. He is known for his signature style, known, known as Le Style Guimard, and also um, the Metro. Uh, he's well known for the Metro designs, uh, known as Le Style Metro. So I think those are what are immediately identifiable to him now uh, around the world. Often inspired by natural forms, Art Nouveau had a major influence on architecture and design at the turn of the century from 1890 to 1910. Art Nouveau is a movement that radically moves away from classical and revival styles to a more naturalistic, organic form of, of design that's seen in buildings and art, architecture and designs. So what would be uh, an aesthetic element of Art Nouveau that might be incorporated into a piece of architecture? Um, very curvilinear uh, whiplash, I think that's the term used for what you visually see in a lot of his designs. 
organic floral and fauna um, inspired by nature primarily. He starts as an architect, is designing buildings, but really, as visitors will see in the exhibit, he's he's designing lots of things. Yes, in fact, um, um, he's designed his uh, wife's wedding dress and the jewelry, their home together. They believed in um, a term called Gesamtkunstwerk, which means a total work of art. So what that meant for them is that they not only designed and executed these incredible pieces, but they lived that as well. They lived that, they incorporated that into their daily lives. After studying architecture, Guimard began making a name for himself through his take on Art Nouveau. What brought him to fame primarily is his building designs in the Art Nouveau um, style. Uh, Castle Beranger, for example, was the first uh, commission that he was given that was a building created in this Art Nouveau style. Guimard designed more than 50 buildings between 1890 and 1930 including the interiors and the furniture and the wallpaper. Again, getting back to that term I've used more than once now, but the Gesamtkunstwerk, uh, which is an overarching theme in this entire exhibition, whereby it's a matter of living the design as well as creating it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking to Sally Ann Felgenhauer, Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Driehaus Museum in Chicago. The River North Neighborhood Museum is presenting a new exhibit on acclaimed French architect and designer Hector Guimard. The exhibition is in Chicago after a run at its partner organization in New York. It's a joint exhibition co-organized with the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York. And my understanding from the curator, David Hanks, that the genesis for this exhibition came from um, the Richard H. Driehaus collection. Richard had one of the most important private collections in North America of Guimard pieces. And in that conversation with David, it just seemed natural for this exhibition to develop. One thing that, that came up as you were walking me through the exhibit and showing me different things was that not only his incredible talent and eye for detail, but also he was a pioneer in a couple of different aspects. He was a pioneer. He was also a great marketeer and um, self-promoter for uh, one of the expositions that he presented his work out. He created a series of custom postcards of the works that he had created to promote himself. It's like handing out your business card in Mm. essence. So he created a group of 24 uh, postcards for one exhibition at the 1900 Exposition Universelle. And even something like his signature, he would incorporate it into his buildings. Yes, he would um, sign his buildings as he also felt like it's, it's not just art and architecture separate unities. It was all for him art, just as his life and the way he lived was considered art. He would sign the buildings. You know, I think he called himself at one point l'art de l'architecture. <laughs> right. So. And I know you can't speak for Mr. Driehaus, but is anything known about what his interest was in Guimard? Richard H. Driehaus, our founder of this museum, was a collector of this style of artwork. Uh, he collected things that, as I understand, that were important to him. And he had an incredible eye (laughs) Um, as we are looking at um, what we have here for this exhibition. We have a great number of works from the private collection, the Richard H. Driehaus collection. Um, And several pieces are unique in that uh, we have a beautiful tall case clock in uh, the first theme of the exhibition, which is about Monsieur Madame Guimard. And there's only two in the world, and Mr. Driehaus owns one. 
And so we were fortunate enough to be able to incorporate that into our exhibition. Richard H. Driehaus had one of the most important private collections of Guimar in North America. He's not, he wasn't really well known as a collector. It's a co-organized exhibition with the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. We have um, loans from private lenders and we have uh, the Metropolitan in New York, MoMA, uh, Cooper Hewitt, and we have reproductions of items from the Musée d'Orsay also presented in this exhibition. Lots of unique things on display in this exhibition, including light fixtures and pieces of furniture designed by Guimard, and also some individual pieces of those original metro station entrances. Felgenhauer is hopeful the exhibit sheds some new light on a somewhat forgotten but influential architect and artist. I hope they take away a wonderful experience, not only experiencing Guimard, but also the uh, Samuel Mayer Nickerson Mansion, the Driehaus Museum. This architect and designer um, who speaks to a lot of what we see in the Driehaus Museum. That's Sally Ann Felgenhauer, Director of Collections and Exhibits at the Driehaus Museum. The institution's exhibit Hector Guimard, Art Nouveau to Modernism, is on display for one more week through November 5th. You can find more information at driehausmuseum.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Have a happy Halloween. Thanks for listening. spell on you because you're not